This is episode number 263 with Ed Levine of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine and also the host of this show. So I've just come back from New York, pretty jet lagged, but the exciting thing is we've got a fully functioning office, we're building the team, we're working on just producing so much video content for you guys courses a lot of these interviews are now being produced in video format eventually every single one will be and we're really trying to grow our company through video and you know we're going to do more audio stuff too but i think it makes sense to capture the video at the same time so pretty much uh if you haven't yet signed up and subscribed to our youtube channel please make sure you do. Just go to youtube.com forward slash founder. Uh, we produce a lot of our interviews now in you know a video format, but also we produce like how-to videos on certain topics. We have behind the scenes showing how the hell we're growing this company. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get your support there, guys. If you are enjoying the content that we produce, we produce written content, audio content, and now a lot of video content to help serve you. And then we're also starting to really scale up our educational courses. We've got incredible instructors teaching some of our courses, and we've got plenty more that are teaching some incredible things that you guys want to learn so you can either start or grow your business. So let's talk about today's guest, Ed Levine. He is the founder of a company called Serious Eats. Now, I talked to him about his journey uh, as a founder and about his latest book called Serious Eater, A Food Lover's uh, Quest for Pizza and Redemption. Uh, so really, he he shares with me kind of the like in ins and outs of how he built a large media company. Like when he built up this company, he got it to over 8 million unique visitors per month and it was eventually sold. Um, he bootstrapped this company. 
And, uh, you know, he talks about the ups and the downs because let's face it, guys, building a business is ridiculously hard. It'll probably be, you know, up there with some of the hardest things that you've ever done in your life. And I feel that too. So we talk about that and so much more. So it was a fun interview, really interesting character. I hope you enjoy this one. And if you are enjoying our podcast episodes and this podcast, please do take the time to leave us a review. Just uh, you know, whether it's on Spotify, Stitcher, um, now Pandora, iTunes, it helps us more than you can imagine. And if you have any friends that are founders or entrepreneurs, let them know about this show. Do them a favor. Like I believe like if you want to learn entrepreneurship, the Founder Podcast is the best MBA that you can get and it's free. So guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? How did I get my job running Serious Eats or just how did I get uh, how did I get my job as a food writer or yeah how did um, you get how did you get your job like how did you how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today uh, so I was basically um, I think I wrote my I actually wrote my my first piece of food writing was actually a book I wrote in 1992 which I did because I hated my day job uh, which was at a advertising agency, and my wife, who is also a literary agent, suggested that I need to um, do something that was just for me and that I would enjoy doing. So uh, I really love this book called The Food Lover's Guide to Paris. And what I loved about it was that it um, – there were these great profiles of people who made food, not just chefs, so chocolate makers or bread bakers. And I realized there was nothing like it for New York. And I was very passionate about food and very opinionated about it, even though I'd never written anything about it. I'd written a lot about pop music and jazz before that. And so I came up with an idea for what turned out to be my first book, New York Eats, which was a guide to non-restaurant food in New York. And all of a sudden, much to my surprise, I became a food writer. The New York Times did a big story on the book. Uh, the writer, Florence Fabricant, who actually still writes for the Times food section, called me the Homer of Rugelach. Rugelach is this Eastern European cookie, butter, sort of butter cookie, rolled butter cookie. And uh, so, and then all of a sudden I became a food writer. So I started getting assignments from Gourmet Magazine. And um, then I uh, ended up uh, contributing to the New York Times for five or six years. I would do these big pieces on um, iconic American foods like pizza or hamburgers or hot dogs. And... Um, they would get a lot of attention because they would give me a lot of space in the paper. And then I, from there, I did a food radio show. I mean, I love telling stories in, in all media. So I did a New York Eats television show eventually. And uh, 
did a follow-up to that book called New York Eats More. And uh, I did a bunch of short-form radio pieces called New York Eats. You name it, I did it. You know, it was like I had, in the early days of AOL, I had a content area called New York Eats on AOL. I was working with Prodigy. Uh, I was just doing whatever I could to... um, to be able to tell my stories uh, and opine about food. So eventually that um, led me, because I also had a background in media consulting, creating brands on television, specifically on cable television. So I worked for a company that developed the look and feel, the original look and feel of MTV and Nickelodeon and Nick at Night. So I was doing a lot of media consulting and then I was doing my food writing on the side and then sort of, and I was doing pretty well. And, but I was always at the mercy of my editors. And so I longed to um, sort of control my own fate, both creatively and financially. Uh, and what, so I started, um, a blog, you know, at the cost of a hundred dollars called Ed Levine Eats, uh, in 2005. And that came out of the ashes of a failed, I was gonna, I was developing a competitor for the food network for MTV networks. And at the last second they pulled out. And so, but I had learned a lot about the web in, in, in developing that business plan. And so I started a blog and, um, I just felt emancipated and it was like, this is so great. And at the time, you know, like everyone was saying, as, as I talk about in the book, oh, blogs are the future of publishing, you know, like magazines are going to go out of business and newspapers are going to go out of business. Everything is migrating to the web and all the ad money is migrating to the web. And so I got caught up in the startup fever of 2006 and 2005. Uh and that lasted, as you know, until the great financial meltdown. So it was sort of the, I was in the epicenter of the Web 2.0 world. And I just became convinced, like, this was the way I was going to attain financial security, doing what I love. And I would have no more gatekeepers in my life. So that was sort of the impetus for starting Serious Eats. And it launched in December of 2006. I raised some seed money, not a lot, uh, because like all first-time entrepreneurs, you have to be willfully naive. Uh, And I was. And um, naively optimistic as well. And so I just launched. And without... um, just thinking that we would become self-supporting and self-sustaining like within a year. And I think I'd raised, um, I don't know, 
six or seven hundred thousand dollars in seed money, which of course I blew through in you know six months. So I was always raising money. Uh, I, I, I I write in the book I was always slash never raising money, uh, and I never had more than I don't know. I maybe I had two months run rate at the most. So I was always raising money and it was entirely in friends and family. There was no institutional money. There was no VC money. All the VCs said, you know, well, you haven't proved the concept. Come back when you've proved the concept. And of course, what I knew after a while was if you prove the concept, why would you go to a VC? Because that's the most expensive money you can get. So I just kept uh, going along and our audience kept growing and we were intermittently profitable, but we were, um, we were always uh, struggling. I was, uh, you know, I was like Sisyphus. I thought the boulder was all the way up the hill and then it would roll back down. And, uh, you know, I borrowed a lot of money and of course, as many of your listeners know, it's really hard for a small business to raise money, actually, to, to borrow money. It's actually impossible without personally guaranteeing it. So I ended up personally guaranteeing a lot of money, which, of course, um, my wife was not thrilled about because uh, we got up to, I don't know, over half a million dollars. And, and there were... I would say a half a dozen times that I thought that we were going to be sold. And this is all in the book, right? And, and, and the book is called Serious Eater, A Food Lover's Perilous Quest for Pizza and Redemption. And so it was perilous because we were always running out of money. I was always going to my investors and saying, I just need $100,000 and then we'll be fine or whatever you can give me. And, and my late brother was the first investor in Syria Seats, so it sort of put a lot of strain on that relationship too. So I think one of the things that your listeners should, should understand is you know, starting a business, bootstrapping a business uh, does not come without a very specific set of costs and risks. And the risk is not financial. The risk is as much emotional and psychological as it is financial. I, I write in the book that when you fall in love, you don't ask your, the person you fall in love with, what their tolerance for risk is, right? It's just not something that's discussed. But when you start a business, you quickly find that people do uh, discover in the hardest ways possible what their tolerance for risk is. And, you know, the story of Serious Eats is just like, I just refuse to lose. You know, it's like, we almost sold it, as I say, a half a dozen times to big companies, Discovery, uh, 
American Express, you name it, they all came a calling because we were, for a few years, we were the next big thing, right? We were called the future of food media. We were called the gastronomic super site. We were called all these things. And then I realized that good press does not, the bank does not take good press as collateral for a loan. And so, you know, I just managed to survive, but barely for uh, eight years. And um, just by, you know, someone asked me, like, how did you persevere? It's like, I think the reason I persevered was because I was so, I identified so much with the site. And I thought if Sirius Eats went down, then I would go down, you know. Uh, and so, you know, my my desire for for financial and creative freedom and control quickly became this albatross around my neck. And so I promised my wife. Um, at the end of 2014, that if we weren't self-sustaining by January of 2015, that I would put the site up for sale. And uh, there were a bunch of people that wanted to buy it. And unlike uh, other times, uh, you know, someone made a non-binding offer that became a binding offer. And so in June of 2015, it was sold. Are you able to share how much? No, I really don't want to talk about how much. Okay, that's all right. Um, But uh, it was enough to pay my investors back like 90% of their money, which um, given that they had all kissed that money goodbye a (laughs) a long time before that, they were happy with and they also got stock in the new company and my wife and i made enough money to to um to cushion our retirement you know because i was a <laughs> i was a 50 when i started serious eats i think i was a 52 year old first time digital um entrepreneur you know and um so when I sold Sirius Eats in 2015, that meant I was, what, 63. Uh, and so it was um, providential that I, we were able to sell it. And I'm really proud of what we were able to do. I, I think Sirius, and I'm, I'm still running Sirius Eats now, but without the stress that um, comes with uh, having to worry about the checkbook and it continues to, I think, be a a great website. I think the best food website in the world and, um, a great source of recipes and food advice for people all over. Incredible. What a story. Yeah, it's a, it's a roller coaster ride. Uh, the book is, uh, the perilous quest is a roller coaster ride. It, you know, one of the things I turned out to be good at, which I think is a really valuable skill for um, 
entrepreneurs is I was pretty good at scouting talent. So uh, first of all, because I couldn't afford to hire established talent. So, but one of the people I hired was this guy named Kenji Lopez-Alt, who wrote a book called The Food Lab, which is probably one of the four or five best-selling cookbooks in the U.S. of the last 10 years. And um, so he wrote the foreword for the book, which is, it's a very beautiful foreword. And um, he, he wrote that it reads more like a carefully crafted novel than a real person's life. <laughs> uh, and it's true, you know, it's a weird, it's a, it was a wild ride. Um, when I first got the book contract, you know, uh, and I talked to a friend of mine and I said, you know, I think it's going to be a prescriptive business book. And he said, why? The subtitle should be how not to start a business. But it's, you know, you don't know any better, you know, and, and you get caught up in especially there are certain periods of time, you know, all over the world where startups in a certain area seem like they seem like low lying fruit, you know, like, Oh, anybody can do a startup. And everyone would say there's so much money out there waiting to, uh, to, to find companies to invest in. And I, as I say in the book, the only people who tell you that are people who don't need money, you know? Uh, so, it was an amazing, amazing journey. I don't regret any of it, but it, it, it didn't come without cost. And people should understand that, you know, they, they, you know, one of the famous truisms about startups is, and entrepreneurs is fail early and often, you know, and, but I, that wasn't an option for me. 52 is not early <laughs> and there wouldn't be an often because if serious seats uh, failed, nobody was going to give me money for another venture. Not, not at that age, not with no track record. So I had to make serious seats work and it was a sheer refusal to lose you know, that I had inside of me and I, and I didn't even really know it. And I didn't even understand that that's what I had until somebody in like 2010 or 11 said, oh, congratulations on Serious Seats. It's really great. And I was like, I said to him, well, thank you. And I said, well, I really like to win. And he looked at me because he was a banker and he was like, you know what? That's bull. Everybody likes to win. It's the people that refuse to lose that drag their businesses across the finish line. And I thought, wow, that's a distinction with a difference. You know, it's like, because he's right. Everybody, who doesn't want to win? It's like, no, I was put on this earth to lose. You know, it's like, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but there is a sheer stubbornness in refusing to lose that I think 
is required of a lot of entrepreneurs and they don't know it when they start a business. You know, because all they do is read about the unicorns and, you know, and this is the where the business press comes in. I don't mean to knock your magazine or whatever. It's like the business press is consumed with either mega successes or mega failures. Okay, so what that leaves out is the ninety nine point nine percent of other businesses, of other startups that are neither mega successes or mega failures. And this book and Serious Eats story is a story that that is part of the 99.9% of the stories people don't read about when it comes to startups. Mm, I love that. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you're... You know, everybody's a unicorn. You can have a billion dollar valuation, you know, and it's like I write in the book, you know, to to raise money, as you know, it's like we'd say I'd say, you know, within three years, we were going to be at 40 million dollars in revenue. It's like, are you kidding? But you have to say that to get the money. You know, one of the things I always say is that business plans are by definition, works of fiction. They just have to be plausible works of fiction. fiction. You know, the people that are going to lend you money have to suspend their disbelief. You know, it's like what creative people ask when they write a, a, a novel or a movie or, you know, you watch a television show. If you're going to give in to that show or that novel or that movie, you have to suspend disbelief. So you have to create an environment which allows the viewer to suspend disbelief. And and it's really the same thing with a business because nobody can tell you what's going to happen. Think about all the pivots. Think about something like Slack, right? Slack start was started by Stuart Butterfield, who had started Flickr with his now ex-wife. And they started Slack as a multiplayer video game platform. Crazy, right? Think about that, okay? It did not work as a multiplayer video game. But either Stuart or somebody else figured out, hey, it could work as an intra-office communications tool, which a lot of people can be on. And now Slack is worth many billions of dollars. By the way, did Stuart Butterfield plan that when he started Skype or when he started Slack? Absolutely not. I've never talked to him. I think I met him once, but you know, it's, uh, that's just the way things go sometimes. And, and for people to think that things are going to go according to plan when they start a business, they, the only people who say that have never started a business. And I don't care how big the business is or how big you want it to be, you know. And the thing, one of the things I realized is I really was just trying to give myself a job that I loved. And so to do that, I couldn't say what, how much money the business would gross 
or would sell for because nobody would be interested in investing money so that I could have a good job. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah we like you to have a good job, Ed. You know, like here's $500,000. Doesn't really work that way. So, you know, there's, there's so many lessons to be learned in starting a business. And there are so many lessons to be learned that you can't learn without starting a business. You can read every business book in the universe. And there are many of them that are brilliant. And it still will not prepare you for what's about to happen to you when you start a business. And for people who think, oh, I read this book. I know what happens. It's like, no, you don't. You know, just talk to people who have started businesses. Uh, you know, I, when I started Serious Eats, I, I had a bunch of partners who turned out to be not very good partners and sort of stabbed me in the back. And, and then I ended up um, meeting this woman named Meg Hurahan, who started Blogger with Evan Williams, who's gone on to found Twitter and now Medium. And, you know, there's a great book. I don't know if you've ever seen it called Founders at Work. Yes. Yeah. By Jessica Livingston. She's, yes. uh, she's been on the show. Okay. So Founders at Work had the story of Blogger. And they ran out of money so many times that, you know, uh, Meg and Evan had, were having such fights that they, you know, he sort of said, okay, fine, you know, I'll just, I'll just do this on my own. And then he would sleep in the office. And of course, what they thought Pyra Labs, which was the company they'd started, uh, was going to be, turned out not to be what, what they ended up selling, which was Blogger. They sold the whole company, but it was really just the first blogging platform. And it was Google's first um, acquisition. I don't know what year that was. But if you read that book, that, those stories in that book, and of course, I didn't read the book until I'd started Street Seeds. It would have, they would have given me pause. Uh, but, you know, Meg really, because Meg had started a business, she was invaluable to me. Um, even though she didn't end up staying in the business longer than six months or a year. And, you know, she got a small piece of equity and, but we're still friends to this day. And, and, and when I sold the business, she made some money and she obviously, when they sold blogger, they, they made a fair amount of money. And of course, then Evans now gotten richer and richer, but, uh, you know, it's so people just have to understand that they're all roller coaster rides. Maybe mine was rougher than most. Um, Why do you think I'm that also, is? You know, I I think because I was too I I too I identified with serious eats too much that I was Serious Eats and Serious Eats was me. 
So once you once that's your point of view, it just makes every bump in the road that much bumpier. Um, and also, I, you know, there's another thing. Nobody will say this to you. All those unicorns you read about, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to do one thing more than anyone else. He didn't want to connect everyone in the world. He wanted to make a lot of money. And if you don't believe, if you didn't believe it then, you certainly would believe it if you ever watched that movie and you've ever, if you, if you notice what's happening now. And I never, I don't have that gene. I'm not willing to screw people to make money. I'm just not. And that's how I'm wired. And people should understand that how you're wired and what your experiences are before you start your business will play a role in, in how your business evolves and where it ends up. And so the idea that all these people, oh, they didn't want to make, you think Steve Bomber wanted to, wanted to create something super useful to the world? No, Steve Palmer wanted to make a ton of money. And guess what? He did. Um, and so people are fooling themselves if they don't, if they think otherwise. That's just the reality. And so you're asking, why do I think it was a rougher ride for me? Because that's not how, that's not, it's not how I roll. It never was before I started Serious Eats, and it's not now. You know, that's not good or bad, by the way. That just is. It certainly would have made it easier if I was more focused on money. <laughs> I, 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 do, I don't know how to use Excel to this day. <laughs> okay, so I mean... <laughs> But, you know, I couldn't be prouder of Serious Seats. It's, it's a great website. It's given birth to so many people's careers. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And it was the most unexpected pleasure. And people can read about this in the book. Because the last chapter is sort of called The Day in the Life of the Serious Eater 2018. It was, and I was just going from party to party for that were for books and companies that were started by Serious Eats alumni. And that's a fantastic feeling that you've given people their wings. And I just didn't know that before. And it's, it's the source of my greatest pleasure, really. It's like there are all those, these, all these Serious Eaters out there. I think I added up staffers have written like 10 books and contributors or columnists, and that number becomes 25, you know. And uh, you notice I didn't say, and all these people have gone on to establish multi-billion dollar companies. Doesn't really work that way. But um, that's not how I measure success. How, how do you measure it? I measure it like have I, have I, created an environment uh, that allows people to um, do their best work? And then have I um, 
given birth to many people's careers. And, and I talk about this in the book, like how you measure success is a really important part of starting a business. Uh, so I measure it like I created something that millions of people find useful, even essential to their lives. So it's, that's a great feeling. Now, for a lot of people, that wouldn't mean shit. I get it, you know, but for me, it, it's really important. It was essential. You know, everybody has to define success for themselves when they start a business. And uh, I don't think I quite understood that when I started Serious Seeds. Yeah, so um, I have a few questions for you, Ed. Um, you've been incredible. Uh, I haven't had to do much work here, but I've been diligently uh, taking notes. And All we have, right. And we have, we have uh, you know, a little bit of time left. So I, one thing that you said that I've never heard anyone say before, which I quite, find quite interesting, is that developing that tolerance for risk and you don't know what it is until you start your business. And that is totally true because I think I was thinking of myself even starting this particular company and the amount of risk that I, I've, I've developed over time. I'm curious, like what, what kind of tolerance for risk did you have when you started and did it change over time? And, and yeah, yeah is, is it yeah, really that, high? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. You know, so in the book, the first chapter, the first few chapters are devoted to my childhood. So, uh, and I lost both parents to illness oh, by the time I was 15. So at 15, I found myself without a home and without parents. And so my oldest brother and his new wife adopted me, right? So we found ourselves in uncharted territory pretty quickly. And I think that experience honed my survival instincts and sort of maybe gave me the ability to take on more risk because from a very early age, I had to rely on my wits and I had to learn to uh, even connect to my brother who all of a sudden became my father and who was 11 years older than me. So he didn't, I didn't really know him, right? He left the house for college when I was seven or something. And all of a sudden, it's like, here's your new dad and mom, you know? And I was like, hmm. And so once you learn that you can take that kind of punch, which is not insubstantial, and you have to figure out a way to keep going, that that turns out to be a useful thing to have learned about yourself. You know, survival instincts are essential to starting a business. 
and how you develop those survival instincts, I think you develop in many different ways. You know, my survival instincts were honed in those experiences, right? I mean, it's like, what a, you know, I had two options. You know, I could crawl into a ball and go into a closet, or I could figure out a way to just put one foot in front of the other and move forward. And I certainly wouldn't recommend that as, as training for starting a business, but it turned out that, um, that in part, I think I developed a tolerance for risk in that experience. And and because I had to depend on my wits. So and also I was really bad at having jobs. I was terrible, the worst. You know, I don't suffer fools well. I hate hierarchical structures. And so, like, I worked at record companies and I would get fired or laid off. And the same thing with ad agencies. And so. You know, again, it's like I learned to depend on myself to find work, to find consulting clients, to to get writing assignments. So you become it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of like, how do you develop your tolerance for risk? It's like I didn't make a decision. I wanted to lead a risky life. Right. But stuff happened. And then I think partially as a result of the things that happened, I developed a tolerance for risk. I just thought that that's the way everybody rolled. And I don't think that's true. And again, I'm not advocating this as a as training for for starting a business. But I think I've answered your question. Yeah, you have. Thank you. Um, curious around traction with Sirius Eats uh, at the point that you were able to sell it in 2015? Um, like how many unique visitors per month? Uh, many, let's see. When we, yeah, when we sold it, I think we were probably up to seven or eight million uniques a month. Yeah. Wow. It's great. Again. Um, so, and it was all organic, right? None of the traffic was bought. You know, people used to ask me what our SEO strategy was. And my, my answer was always, we put up great shit and we hope people find it. <laughs> How good's that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, I, um, and and that's you know we we're, we've gotten more sophisticated since then, and the company that bought Serious Eats is actually very sophisticated about it. But at the time, it worked because we were putting up great shit, and people we you know here's something we we were you know Seth Godin wrote a great book called Tribes, and what I didn't realize what I was doing when I started Serious Eats is I was building a tribe. Like I was building a home for people who were passionate, discerning, and inclusive about food. And uh, it was like a clubhouse for those people, an online clubhouse. And people turned out 
to want that. Uh, I didn't do any market research before I came up with that. And I can tell you that it, that was, that was my writing voice. So if you read New York eats, which is out of print, or you read the new book, um, the writing voice is passionate, discerning, and inclusive. It's conversational and it's welcoming and it's all these things used to be on the, on our homepage. We'd say we had a little, uh, sign that said, welcome serious eaters, you know, and it was like, we were building a tribe of serious eaters and it turns out that it was millions strong, you know, and it's like one of the dedications in the book is, um, for the Sirius Each Tribe at World Headquarters and our community, Million Strong, who taught me that anything and everything is possible with the aid of hard work, a good idea, and a little luck. And I think that's true for a lot of businesses. By the way, all those things won't ensure your success either. There are plenty of businesses that, that had all those three things and still fail. And I know that. So I consider myself incredibly fortunate. So talk to me around the monetization path. You said that like, you know, for you it's, and I can resonate with this, it's just about finding and doing work that you love. And, uh, you know, you never, you never used Excel, still don't. Um, so how did you end up, I guess, building a business besides having a significant monthly user base or, or a tribe um, that made your business attractive to eventually be sold? Uh, like, what did you do to monetize? Was it just ads or? Sure. So it was ads. And if you, if you think about it, and I talk about this in the book, in 2006, Facebook was barely selling ads. Google was selling ads to get high up right in their search results and they were buying and you could buy keywords. Right. But Facebook, I think it started selling ads in 2004 when we launched in 2006, it was selling. I, I it's in the book, but I think it's in the tens of millions of dollars today. I believe Facebook sells 12 or last year or the last year that anyone's counting definitively, it sold $12 billion, 12 billion with a B. Yeah. Okay. Not only that, between Google and Facebook and Amazon, and these are not new statistics for anybody in digital publishing, they get, I think, more than 80 cents of every new digital advertising dollar and um, probably more than 60 cents of all advertising dollars. Just think about that. It's insane. So, but... In 2006, it was like, hey, all the advertising money is migrating to the web, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I had all these statistics in my, in my business plan. And so and, and we launched with American Express and as an advertiser. It was like, 
how hard could this be? <laughs> you know, it's like, and then it turned out that it was really hard and it got harder and harder and harder. And just think about today. You know, I mean, the guys who own Serious Eats have a good strategy and they're employing all kinds of things and a uh, path to purchase. And, and because if you talk to any publisher, no matter if you're Condé Nast or you're the New York Times, advertising is not going to be the be all and end all of your business. That's why everyone's moving to subscription models, to modified paywalls. You know, they're selling things, they're doing events. You know what I mean? It's like, mm. it's a whole different ball game now. Yeah, I agree. Like, you know, when I spoke um, recently, we interviewed the founders of Refinery29, big sure. media company. And uh, same thing, like that, that you just can't rely on just that one old model yeah and by the way those guys have hundreds of employees even with the layoffs i've met those guys they were one of the companies that we talk that i talked to about buying serious seats you know i don't know what their end game is i don't know what any content driven end game is that doesn't involve charging people for content i don't what did they say? I'm sure they have a great story. And, you know, they, in many ways, they built a really good business. But it's, I don't know that it's a sustainable business because of the conditions that, of the, of the ad sales market. Yeah. And that's the thing. So they've diversified quite heavily. Yeah. They have, they have no choice. Yeah. Because, you know, I never had more than, 10 or 12 employees, I remember walking into their offices like, who are all these people and what do they do? <laughs> so, so let's talk about kind of like you, you've built this, you, you, and still, you know, you've built this incredible place and tribe for people to understand, you know, where, where to go to eat. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, really it's where to, what to cook. It's less, I started it as a where to eat site and mm. then it evolved. That was my pivot. Mm. You know, now it's, if you ask someone in the States, like, how do you know how to cook a roast chicken? They'll tell you, oh, I just type into Google roast chicken, serious eats. That's the highest compliment we can get paid. Yeah. So but anyway, how, how did you, yeah. Like, how did you produce a lot of content if you had a small team and, and, and like, you know, you said you pr produce good shit and hope that people come or, or that, yeah, yeah just, yeah. So I, what I did was I offered people something that they couldn't find a lot of other places, which was freedom and access because of my experience as a mainstream food writer. And again, it was some luck and some like, I can, I'm pretty good at identifying talent. And I, before I was in food, I was in music too, before I was in advertising. And, and so I was pretty good at, at finding talent in both the jazz and pop worlds. But, um, and so that's what I did. And 
as I say, you know, uh, whether it's it was it was a combination of luck or skill, but um, I found a lot of people that really loved having the freedom to create and gave them access to people and um, gave them jobs with, you know, some, well, sometimes, uh, you know, in the beginning, I didn't have many jobs to give, so I would just pay them per post, but eventually I had enough money to hire, as I say, I think there, when we sold series seats, there were probably 12 full-time employees, but, and it was always a struggle. Because also what happens, as you know, is when you develop talent, other people know it, other people with deeper pockets than you. And so it's like, how do you fend those people off? So all you can do is create this environment that's electric, you know, that just fills everybody's souls with with um, energy and passion, you know, because that big companies can't often offer. Mm, I agree. And so that's what I had to do. <laughs> because I didn't have the other I didn't have the money to do it the other way. And really people stayed a long time. You know, like I think the average stay for a serious eats employee is like five years. That's great. Which you know, which in 2019 is a pretty mean feat. Mm. That's cool. Well, look, Ed, I'm super mindful of your time, mate. This is an incredible conversation. I, I could keep talking to you forever. You've got an incredible story. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. So we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, yeah. Best place people can find out more about yourself and your work. Uh, that's question number one. And then question number yeah, two. So, oh, please, yeah. Let's, let's start with that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that one, you know, uh, they can log on to SeriousEats.com and to to hear a lot of the story that you just heard and more, uh, they can pick up a copy of Serious Eater, A Food Lover's Perilous Quest for Pizza and Redemption, which is about to come out uh, like June 11th in the States and um, is available for pre-order on Amazon. Amazing. And uh, the last question was, uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share or any parting words? No, I, I, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope I don't sound too negative because I really wouldn't trade this experience for anything. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't take something out of you. You know, and uh, but I'm incredibly proud. And and that was my definition of success, as I say, is like I wanted to be really proud of what I created uh, and the fact that I uh, that so many people took flight under the aegis of serious eats and that we were able to bring it into we were able to bring the serious eats ship into a safe harbor. You know, it, that's my definition of success. And I hope it'll be other people's too, because there's no experience quite like starting your own business, but you just have to be prepared for many things that you don't, that, that there's no way to prepare for. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Ed. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Yes, thank you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.